it's just, there's all this pressure, you know? And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me and I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head and it's relentless and I don't know if it's gonna stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most is that I don't know if it's ever gonna stop. Yeah. Well, you do have a nail in your head. It is not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there. Stop trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing- You always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. Yeah, see, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail See, you're out. not even listening now. Okay, fine, I will listen, fine. It's just, sometimes it's like, there's this achy, I don't know what it is. And I'm not sleeping very well at all. And all my sweaters are snagged. I mean, all of them. Yeah, I, that sounds really hard. It is. Thank you. Ow! Oh, come on. Ow. If you would just don't try to see things my way. Well, today we start the first phase of one of the most important series that we've ever done, The Forgotten Way, Should I Stay Christian? And it's going to be challenging, but I hope that you will stick with us at the very end. And for those of you, if you aren't Christian, or you were Christian, or now you're not, uh, or you're not sure, or for those of you, if you had the opportunity for us to sit together, and we were talking, just the two of us, if you were being honest, you'd say, you know what, Chad, honestly, I've got one foot out the door of Christianity. I want you to know that I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you're listening online. Some of you, uh, you just need to know that you are not alone and that we are for you. Now to uh, set the stage for this whole series, some of you have heard this simple principle before. We are perfectly designed to get the results we are currently getting. The seemingly obvious principle applies universally to everything from business to organizations to relationships to families as well as to your individual life. It seems obvious, but the interesting thing is that humans, as humans, there's something inside of us that if things aren't going well or the way we want or the way that we intend, if there's a problem or a conflict, whether it's at home or work or school or in our lives, our first instinct isn't to look in the mirror. It's to look around us. And we want to look around us for something or someone to blame, because it's not about the nail. And the heart motivating this series is to address the nail of Christianity head on, no pun intended. Because as most of you know, the, the rate of those becoming disillusioned or walking away from or avoiding altogether the church and Christianity is only increasing. And this is especially true of the next generation, Gen Y, a.k.a. Millennials, Gen Z, where an increasing, for an increasing number, Christianity is not only seen as archaic and irrelevant, but seen as part of a larger problem. And if you identify as a Christian, however you define that, which is one of the things that we're going to talk about, here's the nail that we have to be honest about and we have to deal with. The Christianity is perfectly designed to get the results we are currently getting. 
if this generation and the generations following behind are increasingly rejecting Christianity and the church, the first place we have to look is in the mirror. Now, when I say or imply in Christian circles that we are partly or largely responsible for our current reality, most often the immediate response, and I get it, is to get defensive. It's not about the nail. It's mainstream media. It's mainstream media and how they relentlessly mischaracterize Christians or social media trolls who spew half-truths about Christians or Christianity or it's this political party, it's that political party. It's someone or something else's fault. Or, and I have witnessed this, I've witnessed this happen on multiple occasions when the topic of what I would term church hurt is brought up. I have witnessed Christians gaslight and tell victims of church hurt and abuse, well, no, really, you're the problem. Or uh, you just misunderstood. Or, Or worse, really, what it's really about is you just don't like God's truth. You're not comfortable with it. Or you want a watered down version of the gospel. You're just willing to, unwilling to accept that you're a sinner. As recently as this past week, and I do far less on Facebook than I used to for my mental health and my marriage, uh, but I posted these exact words. For my non-church slash de-churched and or non-religious affiliation nuns or not Christian Facebook friends, like I feel like that's a fairly specific audience. I'm genuinely seeking your perspective as I prepare for a series of talks based on your personal experiences. What comes to mind or what do you feel when you hear the word church? And I said, please comment freely and candidly, or if you prefer, PM me to everyone else, aka Christians. This post is not a forum for debate. It is a chance to be quiet and to listen to the experience and perspective of others if they are willing to share, i.e., and I quoted the brother of Jesus, Be slow to speak, quick to listen. Thank you in advance. Seems clear to me. What about you? Very first commenter. Simply posted a video link. I went ahead and clicked on it, and guess what? It was a video of a pastor condemning how other pastors and churches and Christians are just compromising by a gospel of accommodation. That rather than just deliver the pure, unadulterated truth and just let the chips fall where they may, that what's really happening is pastors and current Christians are doing nothing more than trying to manipulate the message of God and compromise its fullness and and integrity simply so that more people will find it palatable. In other words, before anyone of the intended recipients had a chance to share he decided to get ahead of things by passively, aggressively pointing out in advance that any subsequent comments by the intended audience, of which he was not, were invalid and to be dismissed as nothing more than excuse-making and the whining of people who simply can't handle the truth. And I see Christians do this all the time. But when Christians do things like this, we spit in the face of countless victims with very real mental, spiritual, physical, racial, gender-based, hurt, bullying, even 
abuse at the hands of Christians and Christian leaders, and we try to ignore or try to deflect away from the, the, the attention away from the reality of the skeletons packed in our Christian closet. We don't want to talk about it, or we dismiss connection to things like eight crusades of conquest and ethnic cleansing, where the mandate was convert, leave, submit, or die. Blessed by the top Christian leaders of the day, or the countless ethnic cleansings over the centuries inflicted by Christians under the banner of Christianity, the heresy trials, the tortures, the imprisonment, the hangings, and the burnings of those that were judged by heret as heretics by the church, the witch trials, the execution of women deemed witches by drowning. All of this done under the banner of Christianity. And again, I get it. Our defenses, we want to, wants to kick in. We want to say, well, I wasn't there. Or that wasn't my time or my version of Christianity or my sect or my denomination of Christian. Or that was a different time. We know better now. Or that was the Catholic Church. You know, we always like to throw the Catholic Church under the bus. You know, that, they were responsible for the majority of atrocities. Yet we're, what we're not talk, taught in seminary and what we don't talk about are things like, that one of the greatest Christian reformers, Martin Luther, when he wrote a writing on the Jews and their lies, where this championed Christian reformer wrote concerning Jewish people, we should set fire to their synagogues or schools. Jewish houses should be razed and destroyed. The Jewish prayer books and Talmudic writings should be taken from them, and their rabbis should be forbidden to teach on pain of loss of life and limb. This great Christian reformer urged that safe conduct on the highways be abolished completely for the Jews and that all cash and treasure of silver and gold be taken from them. What the Jews could have is a flail, an axe, a hoe, or a spade to be put into the hands of young Jews and Jewesses so that they could earn their bread in the sweat of their brow. And this was a Christian reformer. Fast forward a few hundred years later, leading up to World War II, another German, Adolf Hitler, said the true message of Christianity was to be found only within Nazism. And in a 1926 speech, Hitler stated that the goal of the Nazi party was to translate the ideals of Christ into deeds and to complete the work that Christ had begun but had been unable to complete. And our defense is, well, no Christian believes that now, but it's that's not true. There are Christians in this nation and across this world that still believe this. And there were countless German Christians that embraced it in their day, or they stayed silent about it. And we don't like to talk about the overwhelming number of victims of sexual abuse inflicted on children and teens and vulnerable women and men by priests and pastors, those in religious power, not just in the Catholic Church, Protestants. I have known some of these victims personally. And how such a huge percentage of these atrocities were covered up over the centuries excused away or even justified by Christians in seats of power. All of this and more is the nail. And one of the biggest reasons so many 
are walking away from the Christian faith and why so many find Christianity off-putting at best, repulsive at worst, is because for, and for the, the vast majority, it isn't about Jesus. For most, it's because of the documented history to current day, the injustices and even the evils done under the banner of Christianity or by self-proclaimed Christians. And today, the current perspective for most of Gen Y and Gen Z is that to be a Christian boils down to this. It's to hate the earth, science, Democrats, Mexicans, and gays, and it's to love guns, the flag, and Donald Trump. And Jesus doesn't factor in. And why is it that this is the current perspective of such a huge portion of the population? Because Christianity is perfectly designed to achieve the results we are getting. And I am sick and tired of the results that we are getting. I'm sick and tired of it. Because like most humans on this planet, I am convinced that there is more to this life than this life. I am convinced that a man 2,000 years ago claimed to be sent by God because that same God loves us and wants to make peace with us in this life and the life to come. And that man claimed that he was the unique, one, only way, truth, and life in this life and for the life to come. And to punctuate that claim, I am convinced that the documented evidence is overwhelming that this man predicted and pulled off his own death and resurrection. And when a guy can be publicly executed, buried for three days, and then come back and says, he's the way to God, I'm going with him. I did not sign up to be a part of something that drives the next generation away, your kids, your grandkids, from the man Jesus and the church. And for those of you who identify as Christian, I don't think you signed up for that either. Yet that's exactly what's happening. And if we don't get our stuff together, I wanted to use a much stronger word, we can kiss the next generation goodbye. And I shudder at the implications. So to begin to do that, one of the first things that I need to do is to say I am sorry. I am beyond sorry. If it, it was possible for one person to confess the sins of and own a responsibility of an entire people group, I would do it. I am owning the fact that by identifying as a Christian for over 30 years, I am connected to a giant multi-century closet filled with skeletons, as well as present-day wrongs and evils. And I will not try to excuse away the sins of my spiritual ancestors or my contemporaries. I acknowledge that in my life, my personal life, not only as a Christian, but as a pastor, too many times I have fallen so very short to be a true reflection of the one that I claim to follow, Jesus Christ. How many times I have personally failed in what the minor prophet Micah, when he wrote, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, 
to love mercy and to walk humbly before your God. And there have been times, especially in the last few years as a leader, where I should have spoken up and I was silent. There were times I should have taken action, but I made excuses to justify doing nothing. And I avoided what justice and mercy require. To humbly but actively confront certain words and actions and the embracing of so-called Christian, religious, and political leaders and ideologies that are in utter opposition to the justice, the mercy, and the love of God as He defines justice, mercy, and love. I fail to lead well. And for that I am deeply sorry. Because it means I too have been part of the problem. So now in this final half or final quarter of my life, I'm done with that. And I hope if you're someone who believes in Jesus, I, I just want to invite you to be done with that as well. Because I have thoroughly examined the evidence. I am convinced that Jesus is the answer to our biggest problems today, tomorrow, and the life after this life. And if you're someone who is convinced of that as well, something has to change. It has to change. And it begins with us. So for the next few weeks, I hope you'll make it every weekend. I hope you'll bring friends. If there's a week you can't make it or you're serving our next, next generation in the other room on a Sunday, I hope you'll get online, that you'll listen, that you'll watch, that you'll share this on social media. Because of what's at stake, what's at stake for you, for people you love, for your kids, your grandkids, and ultimately for our world. Because for the next few weeks, we're going to confront the nail that is current day Christianity. We're going to strip away all the drunk, junk and characters, caricatures, and we're going to get down to the simple, clear, irreducible minimum of the forgotten way that literally changed the world because it became the source of unprecedented light and hope for all of humankind, and especially for the people that had no hope and no light. So in the time that remains, just to get our head around the, the topic, here's the question that we have to start with. What's a Christian? Because if I divided you guys all into groups of 10 and said, answer this question, what is a Christian? You wouldn't get the same answer five or eight times. If somebody, you were, uh, somebody were to walk up to you on the street and say, are you a Christian? Most of you would say yes. A lot of you would say, yes, but. Or you'd say, I am, but I'm not part of this group or this group. And for some of you, the way you were raised, you became a Christian when you prayed a prayer. Some of you were told that you were a Christian because you were baptized as a baby. Some of you were told you were a Christian because you went through a confirmation class. Uh, some of you were raised in a tradition where you were taught that your, your brand of Christianity was the true brand and everybody else was suspect, right? For some of you, Christian is all about what you believe. Others would say, no, it's about what you do. Some of you would say, you know, Christians are kind of annoying. Like, they kind of bother me. Some of you, or someone close to you, you would identify with this assessment of Christians. Christians are judgmental, homophobic moralists who think they are the only ones going to heaven and secretly relish that everyone else is going to hell. And even if you don't feel that way, there are people in your life that do. So there's a lot of confusion and conflict about what does it even mean to be Christian, which is the core of the problem. 
Now, the term Christian, singular, plural, it only appears three times in, in the Bible, and it's not even defined. And what we're going to discover is that the term Christian was actually a, a derogatory term that people on the outside of the Jesus community used to describe people in the community, but they never use that term to describe themselves. It's why it's only three times in the New Testament, and each time it's outsiders or referring to outsiders. And I want to show you the verse that describes it best. It's in the book of Acts, chapter 11. Now, the book of Acts isn't really a book. It's actually an ancient manuscript that was combined with other ancient manuscripts to form what we call the New Testament. Acts was written by Luke, who was a doctor, who was carefully investigating things. He was a man of detail, and it describes what happened after the church, after Jesus left and the church got started. And one of the things that started happening after Jesus left was persecution broke out in Jerusalem against Jesus' followers or what was referred to as followers of the way, thus our title, the forgotten way. They were scattered. Some of them went 470 miles north to a city in modern-day Turkey called Antioch. They got there. They started telling Jewish people and Gentile people, hey, something, God has done something amazing down in Jerusalem. Something miraculous happened. A man rose from the dead. We saw him. We know hundreds of other people who saw him alive. So a bunch of Greek-speaking, Roman-minded people in the city, they started embracing this knockoff religion from Judaism, and suddenly this church starts in Antioch. Well, the word gets back to Jerusalem, where most of the key Jesus followers and leaders had stayed behind, or the, the leaders had stayed. So they send one of their guys, Barnabas, to check it out. He gets there. He's, there's like Christians, or, or, or these new Jesus followers everywhere. He's like, I need reinforcements. So he decides to go get super follower of Jesus, Saul, who's eventually called Paul. Saul happened to not be far away. And in Acts 11, Luke tells us that then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, he found him, he brought him back to Antioch, and then for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And then again, Dr. Luke has been taking detailed notes through this whole period of history, says the disciples, we'll come back to that, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. The disciples were called Christians by who? By people on the outside looking in. One of the greatest reasons you can't get 10 people to define Christian the same way, why there's so many spinoffs and religions from Christianity, the reason why there are Christians on both sides of every issue, small and big, the reason why there are so many denominations and the reason why we can't get along is because Christians and Christianity is not defined in the New, Te New Testament. And as current as history and current day confirm, you can be a Christian and believe and do anything you want. And nobody can go to the Bible and says right here that Christians shouldn't do this and Christians should do this because the New Testament doesn't say anything about Christian except three times, the first being the verse I just read to you and the other two times show it was a label coined by outsiders. When you look at the New Testament and the book of Acts specifically, there is a term that is used consistently to describe people of the Jesus movement or followers of the way, and it's this word, disciple. If you'd asked the followers of Jesus, what are you, they wouldn't have said Christian. They would have said, I'm a disciple. And this is a big deal, and here's why. As the history of Christianity has proven and as can be seen everywhere today, you can hide behind the label Christian all day long and do whatever you want. 
You can go to war in the name of Christianity. You can mistreat people in all kinds of ways in the name of Christianity. But if you open the New Testament and you lock into disciple, everything changes. Now, what is a disciple? The Greek word, mathetes, for disciple, it just simply means a learner, a pupil, an apprentice, a follower. And especially in our culture, we all understand like the principle of being an apprentice. It's to become like the one who is apprenticing you so that you can do that. A disciple is a person that has somebody who says, I need to make a decision or a life choice. So they turn to their teacher. They turn to the master. They turn to the Lord. And they say, how would you handle this? Because that's how I'm going to handle it. I'm trying to decide how to respond to a situation. How will you respond to a situation? Because I'm going to respond that way. What would you do if you were me? Now I'm going to do that. Where are you going? Because that's where I'm going too. How would you react to this? How do you live your life? How do you manage your relationships? Because that is how I will react and live and manage my relationships. A disciple is a person that's looking at someone saying, show me how to live my life. Because that is how I'm going to do it. The answer up front is yes. Now what is it that I should do? That is different from Christian, isn't it? The word disciple is uncomfortably clear and concise. Here's another example. So the word of God spread. The number of not Christians, disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And then there's one about the Apostle Paul who started out persecuting, trying to eliminate the church. He was murdering and putting people in prison. He was a terrorist for his religion. As he was trying to get rid of the church, and he crossed paths with a resurrected Jesus and therefore became a follower of the way. But the people who were followers of Jesus thought he's just trying to infiltrate the community so he can arrest us. So we're told that when he, Paul, came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples but they were afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. And then ladies, there were disciplettes, okay? Acts 9, and Joppa, there was a disciplette named Tabitha. She was always doing good and helping the poor. So my point thus far is this, that once there was an original movement of Jesus followers who literally changed the world for the better, They elevated the status of women, the sick, the poor, the orphan, the poor, the marginalized. The ethnic and racial field became level. A group who introduced the world to an unprecedented type of love that we take for granted. If you look at the New Testament and ask the question, what were these world-changing people really about? And how did they describe themselves? They referred to themselves as disciples. Which brings us to an unsettling but critical question, especially if we are to have any hope for handing the next generation a faith worth building on, one that they will want to build on. And it's this. Am I a disciple or just a Christian? Is your answer, yes, Jesus, it doesn't matter what you ask of me, it's yes. Or are you just a Christian? Another way to put it is, are you a follower of Jesus or just a fan? See, if long ago Christians had decided, forget Christian, 
I'm going to be a disciple. We would not have a closet filled with embarrassing skeletons. If we had gotten this one teaching of Jesus right, our world and our nation would be a different and better place. And here's the one teaching. Here's the context. Jesus, he's at the end of his ministry. He's about to have his last Passover meal with his closest followers. Judas has already gone to betray him. Jesus is running out of time, and he knows it prior to the crucifixion. This is his last chance to point these guys in the right direction. Jesus is like, okay, guys, lean in. Here's here's the one thing that you've got to get right. My children, I will not only be with you only a little longer. Time's running out. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I'm telling you now, where I am going, you cannot come. So, a new command. Guys, listen. A command I'm giving you. Love one another. And then he elaborates. As I have loved you, love one another. As I, Matthew, you remember when we met? What were you doing? Tax collector. Yeah, you were a traitor. Everybody hated you. Peter, you remember the day we met Matthew? I remember. Remember how you guys didn't even want to talk to Matthew, especially not in public daylight, because he was a tax collector working for Rome. And guys, where did we go after we met Matthew? John, you remember? Yeah. We went to Matthew's house, and who was there? All those people my mom said I should never hang out with. And you took us to a party full of those people. Remember how I loved Matthew. Now, I want you guys to do that. I want you to love each other that way. Nathaniel, your brother came to you, said, I've met the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. And you remember what you said? Yes. Nathaniel, you said, can anything good come from Nazareth? You disrespected my entire family. And how did I treat you? I said, come on. You're one of my guys. Come follow me. That's how I want you to treat and love each other. And what I did, what did I do for you just a few minutes ago? I got on my knees like the lowest of servants and I washed your filthy feet. And in the next 24 hours, if you could see what's about to happen because I'm going to die horrifically and I'm not dying for my rebellion, I'm dying for your rebellion. And I'm not dying for your rebellion because you deserve it, I'm dying because you need it. And that is how I want you to love one another. That is what I want to characterize your relationship with one another. And then he said, by this, by this one thing, by this one dynamic, by this one thing, everyone will know that you are my, what's the word? Disciple. See, being a Christian and being known by your political stance and position and what you say you believe so easy. But to love as Jesus calls us to love, as he loved those guys, unconditionally, sacrificially, knowing that one would betray him and that all would abandon him in his moment of deepest need. Listen, I know nearly all of you are Christians, but have you, you have to decide. Are you a disciple? Much of Christianity long ago lost sight or forgot the way of Jesus. When Jesus said to his closest followers, I'm going, 
And I want you to create a community of people who are defined and characterized by this unconditional, generous, sacrificial, compassionate, ridiculous, irrational love. I want people to be able to come to the edge of your community and look in and go, wow, look at the way they treat one another. Look at the way the men treat the women and look at how the women treat the men and look how they treat widows and orphans and sick people and those that are marginalized and rejected by the rest of the world and all of the religious elite. Look how generous they are with their money and their time. Look at them. Love. Jesus says, I want you to go and I want you to build communities like that and they're going to grow and they're going to expand and people on the outside are going to be drawn to the the edge and hopefully they'll be inspired to join you. But at the very least, they should all be inspired to say, you know, I don't know if I want to become one, but I, I would love to work for one because, man, the way they treat their employees... Or, man, I would hire all that I could because they are the most honest, hardworking people and they play so well with others. They add value to the environment of our workplace. These followers of Jesus, these disciples, like when they mess up, they just take responsibility. And they tell you, you don't have to find out after the fact. They're generous to a fault. They're willing to do the right thing even when it costs them. Who does that? I don't know if I ever want to be one, but I would love to think someone that a man, someone would treat my daughter that way. The way those men treat their wives, that my son would marry a woman who would honor her husband the way those women honor their husbands. I mean, can you imagine if collectively we got that one thing right? If we decided, forget Christian, I'm going to be a follower. I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus who does what he told me to do. I'm going to start treating and loving people around me the way Jesus treated and loved those around him. That that is going to become the defining trait of my life. An unconditional love that can be seen by how I actively treat, respond, and react and act towards others. Can you imagine where our neighborhoods, our city, our nation, our world would be if we just collectively got this one thing right? Because that kind of love is inspiring. It is attractive. It is almost irresistible. And I am convinced if in our time we would commit to making this the defining characteristic for every single one of us that claim to follow Jesus, we would reverse the flow of the next generation towards Jesus and towards the good news that he offers. And if we don't, I'm telling you again, we can kiss the next generation goodbye. It is time for us to stop being Christian and return to the forgotten way and be disciples, followers who follow to make more followers of the one who offers life and to truly understand how we do that and what it looks like, including how, well then, how are we supposed to act and react to outsiders and what about this and what about truth and grace and this and and. That's why you need to not miss any of the next few weeks. This is the beginning of a conversation because this morning's message raises important questions about a lot of things. And that's why you need to not miss. But to just wrap up today, I want to send you with this question. What would it look like in your world to love the people in your world the way that Jesus loves you? With a love that's almost detached from feelings, because it's not based on how you feel. 
towards that person. It's based on what they need the most. It's what, it's what they need to build them up. It's what they need based on what they need to do them good. And it's to be humble and merciful. What would it look like for you and your world starting today? Or is tomorrow when you start your school week, you start your work week, tomorrow to love the ones in your life who are difficult to love? Just like you're difficult to love sometimes. With all of your flaws and all of your dysfunction. What if just for the next 10 days, take a trial run. Just decide, okay, I'm not going to take my cue from anyone around me, how I treat them, but to the best of my ability, with God's help, I am going to be a ridiculous lover of these people that are in my life. If you are someone who wants to see a better world for the next generation, who cares whether or not people have hope in this life and the life to come, it starts right here. It starts with you, and it starts with me. It starts with you and I deciding to stop just being a Christian and begin to be a disciple, a follower, day in, day out. It's in every interaction to ask and act on this question, what does love require of me? Not what do they deserve, uh, how do I feel about them, what have they done for me lately, but simply when it comes to my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my husband, my wife, my, my fellow student, a teacher, a coworker, a boss, that person that cut in front of me or took the credit for that, that person who's nothing like me, the one who I find offensive, what does love require of me? Would you be willing to just try it for 10 days? And here's the thing, don't even tell anybody what you're doing. Just start doing it. For some of you, it's going to freak people out. Like what, what, is, what is happening? Just, do, just have fun with it. But be warned. It's not necessarily going to come back your way. I mean, Jesus was crucified, okay? I mean, you may do this, and I hope that you do, but there's no guarantee it's going to come back your way. It's not like, Chad, I tried this for 10 days, and now my wife can't keep her hands off me, or that friend or that coworker, they were so cynical, and now they're just so awesome, okay? Uh, no, this is not a means to an end. This is just what it means to be a disciple. You may see something change, but at its core, it, what it, it's what it means to follow Jesus, to be a disciple. This is way better than Christianity. This is disciple, and, is, and we'll see in a few weeks how disciples, not Christians, change the world, a world not that much different from ours, and how an empire was toppled without an army or raising a sword or a shield. The last thing I just want to say is for those of you who tend to think Christians are narrow-minded, homophobic, greedy, judgmental, hopes everybody goes to hell, however you define Christians, if I'd seen what you'd experienced, experienced what you'd experienced and seen it, if I'd grown up in your family, been around the church that you grew up in, I have no doubt I would feel and think exactly the same way. And again, I am so sorry. I'm so very sorry that there are leaders and pastors and preachers and communities of Christians and self-labeled Christians who may have downplayed or even gaslighted your pain or your clear awareness of the nail that's glaring in our head. Avoid talking about the ugly past and present. But here's my hope for you. I hope that with all you've seen and experienced and all of your hesitation, I hope that you won't miss Jesus. Because... Maybe he has been so poorly represented and what he offers because when we read the New Testament, when we read the Gospels, it is clear in the original way 
Jesus came that we might have life and have it to the full and have it abundantly. And he offers the answers as to why we are sometimes our own worst enemy, no matter what we believe about God and why it is that we know we have failure. So what do we do with that failure and that sin and that regret? So we're going we're gonna to learn all about that. So I hope you'll come back next week because we're just starting this series. Let me pray for us. Father, I just thank you for your patience with us. And Father, I do thank you that I'm not oblivious to all of the amazing things that have been done in the name of your Son. And for some in the name of Christianity because they were people that chose to be a disciple. But Father, at the same time, we have to acknowledge that there are huge swaths of time, people groups that, and again, even in my own life, where we have just missed the mark. And so, Father, I pray that in our time, that in our time and in our day, that we would experience what those first followers experienced, something that brought hope and healing and light, and again, changed the world not so different from ours, and that we would see that happen in our day. But it begins with us, and it begins with you helping us, because we cannot do it without you. And Father, I pray for those that have been hurt, harmed, abused, that somehow, Father, that you, through us, would bring healing, reconciliation, hope, and renewal. That's the kind of church we want to be. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.